This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. And we are thrilled that you could join us. You know, today we're, we're going to, we always talk about storytelling, but we're talking today about storytellers. We, we have an interview coming up with a, a guy named Steve D'Souza, who we'll, we'll introduce shortly. But uh, the reason that, that storytellers came to mind after we interviewed Stephen was the fact that he's just an, of course, he's an amazing storyteller because that's what he does for a living. But when you sit and listen to the guy just talk, but you see why he's a storyteller. It's, it's, it's just what he is, never mind what he does. One of the luxuries of being on a movie set, in addition, it's just a cool place to be. You're surrounded, like I said, by amazing storytellers. And while you and I usually as the director, producers, writers, we're, we're well, the writers less so. The writers sometimes have time to hang. It's when you, when you bump into someone on a movie set who's a, a particularly awesome storyteller, you end up in their thrall. Uh, we both had the pleasure of working with Aubrey Morris, uh, doing Bordello of Blood. And Aubrey, uh, he's just one of those guys. He's got such a rich history. It was exciting to work with Aubrey for me because he was in Clockwork Orange. And that was one of, to me, the most exciting films that I saw when I was a kid to get to work with. We worked with Malcolm, which was exciting. But to also to get to work with Aubrey was great. Aubrey, in the, the downtime while we were doing Bordello of Blood, told the most remarkable stories, having had a remarkable history. He, he told me one story about him and George Bernard Shaw. Now, I, I was a, a drama student at Vassar, and, and just after Shakespeare, there's Shaw in terms of great output in the English language. And... Shaw wrote plays like uh, Pygmalion, which uh, uh, My Fair Lady is based on, Arms in the Man, uh, uh, just Man and Superman, a tremendous output of some of the greatest plays ever written in the language. And I'm sitting at dinner one night with Aubrey and he's telling me about how, oh, when he was at the, the I think the old Vic or the young Vic, I forget which, and he was in a production of, of Shaw's Arms in the Man. And Shaw turns up in the audience one night and Shaw is so delighted with young Aubrey, because at that point he was very young Aubrey, with young Aubrey's performance that he came backstage and insisted on taking young Aubrey to dinner. And so Aubrey insisted, tried very hard to get into Aubrey's pants. Aubrey, no did, not, Aubrey did not say whether, whether the great <laughs> man succeeded or not, but uh, just what an amazing story. Yeah. Well, we worked with some really wonderful people and had some really fantastic stories. You know, um, I, I, Whoopi Goldberg oh, did a God. show with us sure, sure, and sure. Whoopi had some wonderful stories. Uh, Frank Langella we worked with and Frank has some stories about Broadway and off Broadway and way back when. Um, and then I had, the, I had the pleasure of directing Five-ish Finkel on Fantasy Island. Oh, uh, wow. Talking about Malcolm McDowell. Um, and Five-ish told me stories about Yiddish theater going back to, you know, he was pretty old by the time he was on that show. Sure, sure. And so, so we, we had so much history 
and and perhaps the best was when we were making Superman Returns. Uh, Jimmy Karen, James oh, Karen, the actor, sure, really yeah. well-known actor. Uh, he told me stories that about Buster Keaton. He was that's, a crazy Buster Keaton fan. And, that's outrageous. Yeah, that's and outrageous. just and you sit there and you sit there with your mouth open in awe, going, "Get out of here! You're telling me about you're telling me about Buster Keaton. You yeah. knew Buster Keaton." And so Jimmy had wonderful stories. I mean, we became very good friends uh, after Superman and we went out a lot, our wives together. We went away weekends together. And Jimmy was always having these stories that, you know, you sort of look at him after a while and go, is this a story or is this real? No doubt. It was always, always, always real. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, that that certainly brings to mind that kind of is this this cannot possibly be for, be for real. But, you know, it is our, our guest today, the. Uh, Steve D'Souza is one of the few writers in the $2 billion club. Well, he, he got there when it was much harder for uh, you know, features to make $2 billion. It, you know, big movies, it's easier now. But back when he got into the $2 billion club, it was a lot harder. And uh, we met Steve, you and I, when he did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. And he, he, he was he was really delightful to work with. I mean, he wrote the episode. Right. And, and he was directing it. And if I'm not mistaken, it was very early on in his career in terms of him being a director. Yeah. Yeah. He did tales uh, might have been the first, but may have been may, may not have been. But it was early on. Um, and so, you know, he he had a lot on his plate. He, he wrote the episode. He was directing an episode and we were there doing whatever we could to help him be successful in doing it. But the, the thing about Steve is that he understands the medium from top to bottom. I mean, he's probably better than most. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because not only does he write screenplays, he writes action screenplays. Yeah. Yeah. And really, this is the first part of our Steve D'Souza has a story uh, episode. Uh, there will be a second part that we'll have uh, hopefully next episode. Uh, when once we got Steve talking, as you'll see, everything that's happened in his life is a story and, and not just a story. Sometimes there is bloody epic. And it brought him to where he is today. All of these stories that he tells about his career and how it got started and how he went from left to right to left to right. Yeah. All adds up to how he got to where he is today. It, it, that's how Steve D'Souza gets to be Steve D'Souza. You bet. And uh, with that in mind, let's uh, let's bring in Steve D'Souza. Thank you for for so much for for joining us, Steve. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's a, such a pleasure to 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 reconnect after all these all these years. Um, before we, we we get into the into the business side of things, you started life in Philadelphia. That's right. I'm uh, from Philadelphia originally. Uh, I've now spent more of my life out here than back there. I came out here in 1976 uh, on a wing and a prayer, or actually a Freddie, on a Freddie Laker a $300 round trip ticket. Oh God, remember Laker Airways, wow. I'll take you back. My my folks were, were from Philadelphia, so <clears throat> I, I, I feel so connected. What what, what part of Philly were, were you from? Uh, Northeast Philadelphia. Okay. And then, uh, and then my parents moved uh, to Bucks County and I went into Chamonix High School, uh, which was famous for football. Uh, it's a football powerhouse, um, uh, you know, back in the day. I was on the, you know, audiovisual squad. 
and the school newspaper and you know the usual uh the usual uh high school background many of us have sure 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 uh at what point does the jamaican kick in well that's my uh dad's family my uh uh no one expects a spanish inquisition but uh my uh dad's family uh uh fled the uh spanish inquisition uh it went into portugal which seemed to be a safe place to go and then 10 years later it kicked in in portugal and then they went to amsterdam where my earliest ancestor i can go back to uh was ordained as a rabbi and then sent to the new world and was actually the first rabbi in british north america now this is like baseball statistics because the first rabbi in North America was really in in New Amsterdam that was Dutch. So I'm doing a baseball statistic when I say the first rabbi in uh, in British North America. Uh, so uh, then uh, I guess they um, he uh, if I get it right uh, and then his his uh, I guess his granddaughter married the grandson of a famous pirate. They're the great the most successful pirate in history. Actually, nobody knows it, but you can look it up. The most successful pirate in history um, was a a, a British privateer who was an associate of Henry Morgan in Jamaica. His name was um, uh, uh, Moses uh, Enriquez. My middle name is Enriquez. Uh, My my full name is actually Enriquez D'Souza, but it's too long for the marquee. But he and Henry Morgan, um, they captured the Spanish fleet, the treasure fleet, on its way to... um, uh, on its way, I guess, back to Spain with the loot from the New World, uh, and they captured without a shot by sort of like I guess I, I read it. It's on it's on Wikipedia. But anyway, it was today it would be a billion dollars and basically saved the Dutch Republic that 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 uh, windfall. Uh, so anyway, they they were they were my dad's family's in Jamaica for like four hundred years, and it was only after the there was a colossal earthquake um around 1906 i think the same year as the these things happen in waves sometimes you know you see there's volcanoes and earthquakes the rim of fire mm. so i think the same year there was the giant earthquake in san francisco uh was this colossal earthquake uh in jamaica which kind of nuked the economy and that's when uh like the and mass like uh, mm-hmm. uh my dad's uh uh parents and um uh, uh cousins and all declined the camp to philadelphia uh, which was apparently at that time a um, a center of cigar making, and they were in the cigar business uh, in Jamaica. Wow. Uh, so uh, they decamped to uh, Philadelphia, and uh, I grew up like surrounded by um, all these Jamaicans, as we said. And at that time, when my when my uh, dad was little, the other the people in the Jewish community did not know what to make of them. They thought I'll they bet. were gypsies. I'll and I'll in bet. fact, when my when my dad uh, was uh, dating my mother. Uh, uh, her her family they were from uh they, they were from uh i guess uh from the ukraine uh, and uh she said what's his fe- what's his name enriquez d'souza they can't be jewish so she made him bring a bar mitzvah picture to prove he was jewish but my fa- my my uncles had drawn a mustache on my father's bar mitzvah picture so uh, his i guess his his, his mom Went to a went to some photographer and said you have to fix this picture and they didn't have Photoshop in that day so they did kind of a half-assed restoration of the picture and my grandmother was cagey enough to say there's something funny about this picture bring me the original so then he brought the original with the mustache he said okay you can date him 
God, it's it's not a personal story. It's a sweeping saga. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So anyway, oh, I, 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 I grew up uh, I grew up on on uh, Jewish holidays. My my mother had two brothers, but one was in Chicago, and the one was in Philadelphia. He had two daughters, whereas my dad had five brothers hmm. and several cousins in the Philadelphia area. Uh, so on Jewish holidays, it was overwhelmingly this um, the Jamaican thing, and the food was like Jamaican food. You know, it was rice and peas and uh, jerk chicken and all this stuff. Oh, and, I would uh, take that over gefilte oh, yeah, fish I know, any I know. damn so, day. Yeah, over over gefilte fish any day. Oh, geez, so, uh, geez. Uh, and uh, of course, the 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 accents. I, I learned more Yiddish working for Glenn Larson in Hollywood than I ever heard uh, <laughs> sure. in my childhood. Because again, like the my dad's family outnumbered my mom's. So uh, and they, and my da- the older generation all had the Jamaican accents. You know, so uh, I had an aunt uh, uh, who would, you know, when I called, she said, Stephen, it's hot out. Where's your at hat? You know, like, you know, I mean, it's cold out. Sorry, I got it wrong. It's it's cold out. Where's your at hat? You know, so uh, uh, I do a pretty good Jamaican accent. In fact, I had a cousin uh, who who um, they were auditioning, I guess, people for um, uh, a commercial for like some tin oil or something, some product. So she went in audition. It says, you're auditioning for this thing, and she did the best Jamaican accent. She got the uh, the voiceover gig. What ultimately took you out to uh, to this place in seventy seventy six? You said seventy six. Yeah. What brought you out? Well, I mean, I'm getting laid off at a local television station in Philadelphia, in the in the area, being unemployed. You know, I I uh, um, I was one of these kids, probably the first generation of of uh, uh, of uh, filmmakers that was running around making movies in high school. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. common now, and this was you know eight millimeter and stuff like that. So I made a movie in high school. Um, called Coldfinger. You can guess the it was a parody of Goldfinger. My villain wanted to control all the ice in the world. And um, it. Uh, I think I like got a second place or something in a national contest. And that convinced me that I uh, wanted to be a filmmaker. My original desire, actually, if you, if you poked me when I was really small, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I used to make my own comic books and mm-hmm. my own drawings. Um, if you have a website associated with your... Um, podcast we do okay i will have to send you some artwork i did that we insist we insist i'd love to see i guess it was seventh grade the teacher said um i want you to um write and illustrate a fairy tale with your own spin so i did goldilocks and the three bears and they called my parents into a conference with (laughs) with the guidance counselor said look at these drawings your kid son is doing here stuff like that you know and he's always just creative that way but i basically did like a uh Mickey Spillane-esque version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And my illustrations, I had like Goldilocks was the comes to the detective, you know, like like Miss 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 Wonderly, you know, she's falling out of her blouse. I mean, I was was a pretty good draftsman. (laughs) But anyway, but my my mother was um, such a neat freak that uh, if I had to do any artwork in the house, like even in the dead of winter, I had to go outside to erase. She didn't want the erasers to fall on the floor. She was like, Definitely clinical OCD on this stuff. So after a while, the cleanup from any artwork was so onerous that I figured, you know what? Uh, I'll just start. You know, I'll, I'll, st- I'll go back. I'll go back to writing and filmmaking. Uh, there, there's less mess. Remember, one day she came and said, "I've got a surprise for you." And she said, "What is it?" And look what I bought for you. And I go, "What could this be?" She said, "A little package. It was white out." She said, "Now you don't have to erase anymore." Oh, thanks, mom. I know you. Were, I know you were thinking of me. So anyway, um, uh, incredibly I, I, generous. Yeah. So anyway, I was in my second year at Penn State, and at that time, 
they had kind of cobbled together a um, a film course, but it was so nascent that there was only they took the playwriting course, they took drama courses, and there was a TV course. There was no script writing thing. It was like a kind of hodgepodge. It wasn't really put together yeah. that much. And at the end of the second year, one of my instructors came to me and said, you should go to Hollywood. There's nothing more you can learn here. You're ready. Now, I have to back up and point out, by this time, I had been a published writer. I was published for the first time. I'm going to step away for a second. I was published for the first time my senior year in high school by this magazine. This is now forgotten, but at one point, Rogue, Harlan Ellison was an editor here. Uh, they were trying to compete with Esquire and Playboy. Har Harlan Ellison was was the, the editor. Was one of the editors here at this wow. time. Uh, so um, anyhow, uh, I wrote uh, a funny piece for them. Uh, it was a fist, funny enough about Hollywood cliches, and they published it. So I bring it to school, and I'm showing it to the other kids. And another time I got in trouble in school, in addition for my my uh, disturbing artwork for Goldilocks and the Three Bears, what are you passing around back there? And they bring the, oh, uh, you're going right to the principal's office. And I go to the principal, he says, what would make you bring pornography to our school? Well, that's not pornography, the Supreme Court. Don't give me that. Why yeah. would you even think? I said, well, I have an article in there. What? Yeah, it's behind the centerfold. So now the principal opens it up and goes, son of a bitch, that's your name. What do they, <laughs> they pay you for that? And I said, $75. Well, no kidding. So you want to be a writer, huh? And the conversation, five thanks a lot, goodbye. So I was in trouble for it. Then at the end of the day, they do the school announcements and they say, you know, the pep club will meet in room 12. Uh, the soccer field is being reseeded. So soccer practice will be uh, on, you know, the football field. And how, 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 how old were you when this was happening? This is, I guess, I guess 17 or I about to be turned 17. I was, you know, when, when, when I was, when I was seven, I took a, a, a my dad subscribed to Playboy magazine and I took a copy to, to, to school and uh, I got into a shitload of trouble and uh, nothing good happened because I didn't have anything in the damn magazine. Well, that was, that was my get out of jail card in this case. I wish I figured that out first. So, uh, so anyway, from that point on, uh, I was writing, and then the next few years, I, I actually wrote for the uh, New York Times, the uh, the entertainment section, I wrote for True Magazine. Uh, and, but a big, and you're yeah. how old at this point? Well, the first appearance, I guess, I was seventeen. I was I was seventeen when the first appearance, hmm. and then the next few years, uh, I wrote for uh, a, a, going through my first couple years of college, uh, like True Magazine and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the local newspapers in Philadelphia. But a big year, I made like two thousand dollars. It was not a living, and. Um, but anyway, still you, uh, but still, you were doing it. You, you were, you were actually, you know, you were, you were doing it. I was doing it. Yeah. Has writing always been your thing? Nothing. Well, like I said, it started out making my own comic books, but I kind of segued into the actual writing and the filmmaking uh, as I got older. And mm -hmm. so, as I was saying, after my second year of uh, of college, uh, one of my, my instructors said, "You should go to Hollywood right now. Like you're ready to go. There's nothing else we can teach you here." But the army intervened. So I had to go and uh, do my active duty uh, for the army. Um, and um, what year is this? This is 19. Um, I just got contacted by, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. This had to be 1969. Boy, so the draft. I guess 1969. On, yeah, that is Vietnam War. 1969. Hmm, uh, yeah. I went off on active duty, and uh, I was I was a uh, um, I was a medic. Uh, and uh, I was never overseas. And I'm thinking, well, it's not bad. I'm a medic. I'm overseas. All the other, you know, uh, and I was worked at, at Valley Forge uh, Army Hospital. 
which was uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, you always think that... Um, not far from home? Yeah, yeah, not far from home. And uh, uh, you're thinking, well, you know, we're working in a hospital and, you know, it's uh, we're here in the state. It's not too bad. So one day uh, at lunch, somebody said, let's get some chow. And I says, yeah, I'm sick of that commissary food. We want to go to McDonald's? Nah, that's all right. And all of a sudden, I hear a big crash. And as they're leaving the, the base, uh, a truck plowed into a car full of my friends. And suddenly, like, I'm doing what I did not expect to be doing. I'm pulling the bodies of my friends out of a burning vehicle. Wow. And uh, one of these guys died while I was trying to put an airway in his throat. So exactly what I did not think was going to be happening. You know, so I mean, more, I think there's always accidents in training. Uh, and uh, we were in one of them. You, uh, that's what you had for lunch instead. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, after that, uh, when I got out of the Army, I started working for... Um, the equivalent of the village voice in Philadelphia, which is called uh, the distant drummer. And I don't know what was in the water at, at the, at the coffee machine there, but three people who were always at, who we, who were always at our, uh, at the distant drummer office were mm -hmm. all subsequently accused of murder. The most famous one was Mumia Al-Jamar. Jabbar, uh, who uh, is you know still a famous uh, prisoner today, there's a lot of evidence that he was a, that, that he was framed up. But he was like in high school, and he had a bootleg radio station that he was running. You know, if it's under 50 watts, you yeah. don't have to have a license. Right, right. He did right. that. The other one was Ira Einhorn. It was a big leader of um, the anti-war movement in Philadelphia who murdered his girlfriend and stuffed her in a trunk, and then fled to France where he lived, what uh, was lionized as an anti-war person. And he always claimed the CIA had framed him because of his anti-war activities. And finally, after like 25, 30 years, um, after Pennsylvania promised that they would, they would not give him the death penalty, France extradited him. And the third guy was the, was, uh, the associate producer of a local TV station that I also worked on, uh, who one day were saying, where is he? And he was the guy that shot Joe Colombo in the park. And like, we're going like, well, why would the associate producer of this local talk show, how did he get roped into yeah. like being a hitman? We never could figure it out. How do those dots connect? How, how, yeah, yeah. how do you get from the, from there to there? Yeah, but, I, but I, I, I knew all three of these guys. That was the, ah. uh, that was the, uh, yeah, the craziest thing. So anyway, uh, simultaneously with me working in the, the underground newspaper uh, where I had a column, so I didn't go in every day. What did I, you write about? Um, I mostly did reviews, uh, which were kind of snarky, um, you know, but I also had a lot of fun. Like I reviewed the, uh, I forget what it was called, the Quaker City Rock Fest. And uh, I, I uh, smoked pot and uh, knocked back some wild turkey with Janis Joplin backstage. So that was a, uh, a, a memorable experience. Um, I anyway, bet. <laughs> I bet. I, I, my, I got this nominal fee for this column I wrote every week. I think it was like $75. And um I'm looking for steady work and I look in the newspaper and I see an ad and it says, um, um, uh, writers, directors, producers now hiring for a TV station. Now, normally you would never see that in a newspaper unless it was, uh, what do you call talenteers? Mm. You know, it, it's, it's con artists, but what it was as a PBS station was opening up in Trenton, New Jersey, which is right over the bridge. And because they were taking state and federal money, they had to run these ads. So I wrote, this is great. So it's a, you know, so uh, it's a, uh, you know, 15 minute drive. 
Uh, I go there and I'm looking at the address. There's, there's no TV station. So the third time I come around the block, they're hanging a, a canvas sign over the bowling alley sign. They had bought a bowling alley to be the studio because that's a big round. You know, mm-hmm. think about it, the, the, the layout. And you, you could still see, and it was still the shape of the bowling ball and the pin. They had cut it to match. So you could still see when the light hit it, a bowling ball and a pin behind WNJT TV, New Jersey. So I go inside and the whole place is being ripped up in construction. And uh, uh, they, they left two alleys. They left two alleys because they got the contract to shoot Bowling for Dollars there. And in fact, my first directing gig was directing Bowling for Dollars Bowling at the station. Dollars. That was a real I, show. I remember watching Bowling for Dollars. Whoa. You know what it's like to go out and say, listen, you guys are bowling too fast. You know, can you slow down? What do you mean? I got a real, what, what's this kid telling me here? You know, it's a 30 minute show. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I say, who do I see about getting hired there? And they say, you, well, there's a, the fellows doing the hiring is there behind that plywood wall. They just set up like a fake little cubicle with plywood. Behind that plywood wall. So I walk around, walk around That's there. Classy. And, and there's a, there's a guy, I guess, in his, uh, you know, his, in his 60s or something, and he's scratching his stump on his desk and he's got his wooden leg. Now, remember, I've been a medic in the army, so I, I was I was not thrown by seeing for a change a well healed stump. Oh, excuse me. He puts his leg on. And I said, I'm here about the uh, I hear about the job for our, for writers. And I brought a portfolio. Now, by this time, I'd accumulated dozens of appearances in print and I had them like in a book. Uh, so he's going, so New York times goes through it. Going, oh, rogue. I heard of that one. So, so, um, he says, uh, well, you know, gee, you're really a writer, but you know, we hired all our writers already. I, you know, we have a short list. I don't have any more writing opportunities. So I'm ready to say like, I'll be a gopher. I know how to work a camera from my classes. I can operate a camera. I'll, I'll take anything. And he says, wait a minute. Um, we got writer slash producer. Is that something you could do? And I go, yeah. So he hires me for a more better, more higher paying job for which I was not really qualified, frankly, you know. Uh, uh, and it turns out, now how this happened, I went, later discovered that you're the state of New Jersey. You've got a grant from the federal government to open a TV station. You need someone to hire the whole staff. Who do you have on the state payroll who's qualified for that? So they think about it. And this guy's job prior to this was he was in charge of all audiovisual equipment and film rentals for the New Jersey for the Pennsylvania for the New Jersey prison system. So his previous experience was providing like the equipment and 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 approving movies to be shown on movie night in prison. So uh, that was you know how I got into that situation, and it was a great hands-on learning experience. I did learn how to be uh, a producer. And we had one of the things we do in the station is they would uh, rent it out for, uh, you know, for commercials. So all the kind of local commercials you see, they're the same all over the country, whether they're in, in a, a, big out, a, a big outlet like New York or Los Angeles or a smaller one like Trenton, New Jersey. They're all equally lame, you know. Hmm. So I used to, and one of the things I directed was uh, Tody Fields had a cooking show. And I, Tody I, Fields. It, oh, yeah. my God. I remember Tody Fields. I don't remember her cooking show. Wow, how 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 was Tony Fields? Yeah, it was just show? on. It was just on in this local area, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what like like what did Tony Fields cook? Uh, you know, I just know there was a lot of blender activity at this point. I just remember a lot of money. And we had we only had two cameras, so there was a mirror on the ceiling that you would shoot up into the mirror 
to get the down shot right. of, of the of, of, of the cooking. Sure, sure, and sure. you would notice that they would they would stir with the right Tony would stir with her right hand, but when we had the downhead shot, somehow mysteriously, it was her left hand. So this is now, I guess, the early 70s, 72 or something. I have a plaque somewhere thanking me for being there for inaugural the inaugural event of the TV station. And this is when, uh, just as like I had been there when student, student, high school students were making films, this is when we're having the independent films like Joe, uh, which sure. was Susan Sarandon's first picture in Pete Boyle. Yeah. There was mm-hmm. a great Earl mm-hmm. Cannon before the, uh, the, um, the two cousins had it, before Golan Globus had Cannon. And, you know, well, hey, we can make a film. And I had the bright idea of let's make an independent film. So I went around and talked up some people and raised some money. Uh, I had some figures that movies can make money. And I uh, I wrote and directed a stoner film. This is Arnold's Wrecking Company. Right. This is before Cheech and Chon. This is before yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheech and Chon. Yeah, you, you, you got there first. Arnold's Wrecking Company. I, I, I got there first. Now, when we went to put this together, I'm working at this TV station. And there's like-minded people. I'm meeting local actors. And, and I said, hey, let's put on a show here. So I reached out to local people. And one of the people I, as I was putting together my crew, was the sound uh, engineer, uh, the the field sound engineer at our TV station. And he said, you know, Stephen, uh, you get the best rate on renting equipment when you rent on Friday and you take it back Monday, you basically get an ex- extra day. And my, my brother-in-law has a, just started a film rental house. Uh, he's going to compete with the other two big boys in Philadelphia, and I can get you the best deal. All right, great. Sign me up for that. So every this guy would get the equipment every week. We can we filmed on weekends for like eight or nine months. So just around the time I was at my one year anniversary at the TV station, and we're now in post production on the movie, I come into the TV station, and the guard at the the guard at the front door says, uh, "You're supposed to go uh, directly to the uh, station manager's office. Don't even go to your office." Yes. And I go, "Why?" He says, "I don't know. You're supposed to go there." Well, I want to go in my office for a minute. No, you can't go to your office. Go to the station manager's office. So I go to the station manager's office. And in the station manager's office is like the station manager, the lawyer for the uh, the, the TV station, uh, a uniform guard, one of the uniform guards we have, not the head of security. No, the head of security, the uniform guard met me and the sound engineer who's like collapsed in a chair with tears running down and eyes. He says, I had to tell him, Stephen, I had to tell him the truth. And I go, wait, what, what truth? So it turned out there was no brother-in-law. He had invented an imaginary brother-in-law with a film rental house. And he had printed up at, I guess, I don't know, whatever was, you know, whatever was the equivalent of like, uh, you, know, you know, whatever, fake receipts. And every Friday, remember this is a, a, a public television station oh in New Jersey. God. It kept normal hours. So after the station shut down at 6 p.m., he would sneak in with his key to the equipment room and he was renting the station's equipment to, to me. So now they say this is embezzling from the state of New Jersey. Oh my this is a God. criminal act. Oh you are fired oh and you are luck- lucky we are not pressing charges because it's too embarrassing. And so, did that guy go on to be, run a studio in Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, he, he probably <laughs> had the qualifications. Yeah. So now, now and that guy became Peter Goober. Yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, now I'm uh, laid off. Uh, we, we, I finished the, the film in post-production. Mm-hmm. 
I took it to the Atlanta International Film Festival in 1973, where it won the Special Jury Award. I guess the whole audience was smoking pot. And uh, I, I made a deal with the distributor to distribute the movie. And as my continuing like period luck ran, luck continued on course, this distributor went bankrupt the week the movie came out. So it played in all about five theaters and was unseen until like really last year when Shout TV put it up. So if you want to be, if you're a, a budding filmmaker and you want to be inspired, you can check this out and see how far I've come. We, we were putting the blog that accompanies the podcast. All right, you want me to keep going? I'm still strapped in the 70s. I mean. Oh, <laughs> Stephen, hey man, you know, this is, it's really, this is the, this is the moment that I really wanted to get to. It, this is your launching pad moment because this is really what 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 set you going. Wasn't no, but this it? is like this is like the, what was it? What was the what was the thing that kept? We were trying to compete with Sputnik, the Navy that we all of our early satellites crash and burn. They're called Vanguard. They kept blowing up. So this was this I, my launch pad was like Vanguard. It kept blowing up. So this is uh, two fails in a row. The TV station now the movie doesn't get distributed. Right. Uh, so now I decided, you know what? I don't want to be forty years old. And I've never tried real show business. Right. I'm going to go to Hollywood. Right. So this is, that, as I said, this is this motivation. Is the way you go. Okay. I'm unemployed. Right. What the hell? You know, why not? What now do I, you got to lose? Now, I knew enough from reading writer, the writer and Writer's Digest, the two publications. Oh, my God. I'm around, Writer's Digest. Uh, that you needed a script sample that, that even though I had some prestigious uh, appearances in prose, I needed a script sample. Now, remember, they didn't even have a script writing program at Penn State, uh, so I didn't even know what the script margins were. So I took the train up to New York City to a, see, to, uh, there's a bookstore at Columbus Circle called Cinemabilia, which is legendary now, but it closed about 20 years ago. And they had, you know, books from all over the world about film and film production and stuff. And I got several books on what a script looks like. So I knew at least what the margins were. <laughs> at least, sure. Uh, and then I sat down. And I uh, wrote, um, uh, I, I have to leave out the, the, the I have to, in addition to being fired, the, it, what do we say? The, uh, the, the inciting moment, what the, the obligatory scene, the yes. scene that really made me decide I got to go to Hollywood was, it was my birthday. I was very depressed. I'm out of work. Uh, uh, I'm on un, unemployment. I'm getting food stamps. My wife is driving like 20 miles from where we live. So no one sees her using food stamps. And I said, listen, someday I will pay more money and I will pay back in taxes far more than I'm taking in food stamps for sure. like what it turned out. The food stamps were like about it was about six or seven weeks is all it was uh, before things changed. So I flipped the television on and there's a movie on, on television. This is when they had the movies of the week. You know, they made all these basically B, sure. B, maybe even C budget movies. Um, and there was a movie. I remember this day it was called something like Skyway of Death. And it was trying to be a disaster movie. But it was in the cable car in in Palm Springs, you know. This, this is so. This this is in other words, rather than I mean, they couldn't compete with the Poseidon Adventure, you know, or it, Airport it, by having it, that many people like uh, dead. But yeah, this is, is, like, is, is there a moment in there like like where eagles dare? Where you got to leap from one? No, 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 no. But but they had like the Motley Crew. I remember. I remember. There's a nun who's thinking of leaving. Uh, there's a nun and a priest who are uh, thinking of leaving their their calling because they're in love. There's a bank robber who's escaped with the money in his briefcase. Why he would get on a cable car? You know, they had a motley crew. Sure. There's a pregnant woman. It was, you know, sort of every cliche, like on the cable car. And I'm watching this show. Like and now after stupid like, Poseidon adventure. Yeah, yeah. And after a year, at, a year at like the local public broadcasting station, I'm noticing that like the reverses don't match. 
you know, and like some shots of the cable car swinging. And I said, listen, I, yeah. I could write something better than this. Sure. So now I know the format and I sat down and I decided on the two genres that kept me in high school an extra year, uh, which is I always had like uh, a Raymond Chandler or um, uh, Isaac Asimov behind my algebra book. So mm -hmm. I wrote a Hitchcockian thriller, at least in my own mind, a crime thriller and a body horror science fiction movie. What, what were they called? Well, the uh, the the Hitchcockian script was called Triple Exposure, and it was the hero was a fashion photographer. This is probably when did Blow Up come out? I don't know. I don't know. If this oh movie, God! Yes. I don't know if I'd seen Blow Up or not, but uh, he was a fashion up. photographer, mm -hmm. and as he was taking a, a a a fashion shoot in the real world, he accidentally photographed something, uh, and it was like I think it was like kind of like a a conspiracy with uh, oil pressing and it was like oil companies and things like that. And the, uh, the science fiction script was called death probe, uh, which was about a uh, meteor lands. And then people are found butchered and all cut up in pieces. And is there an alien on the loose? And we see a point of view, like an alien point of view, almost like the Terminator point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out that it was a, uh, a an American space probe that was designed to go to Venus, right? To look for life forms. It had gone awry and come back to earth and was still mindlessly carrying out its instructions to capture life forms and dissect them and report back. Uh, at cool. the end of the story, cool. I had a very dark cool. ending. I had a very dark ending that uh, when they finally get the authorities to come in, the authorities come in and call cover it up because it was like uh, an American space probe. So these mm -hmm. are my two writing samples. Now, let, so, me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you right there. Yeah. All right, so this is your first time working in the screenwriting format. Yes. How did it feel? Um, I, I was thoroughly enjoying it. I was thoroughly enjoying it. I had like studied film. I've got, mm -hmm. this is just a small, these are all film books here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there's more here. And it, uh, some writing, of the writing for this, for this form, for this format is a very particular thing. Yeah, some, and, and a lot of people try it, but not very many people are actually that good at it. Some of these books here, I'm trying to think of the publication date. Okay, this is a uh, copyright uh, 1968. All right. So I, I was, I was you know, reading all these books, you know, at that time. And, you know, kind did, of absorbing it. And like, uh, there was one little... Uh, did anything one, help you? Did anything... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you know, I, I was I was, I was, was pretty knowledgeable. I mean, I, the only thing I didn't know was the script format because anybody, anytime you buy... At that time, most of the books you buy that have screenplays, they put them in... They really weren't in the proper format. In fact, the thing that really, really made it for me, I could actually pin this down right here if I could find it. Uh... Uh, let me see here. I keep disappearing. No worries. But uh, yeah, film scripts. Yeah, I think these were the first ones that. Yeah, this, this these were the first books that showed it in proper screen, screenplay format. I think. Right, right, right. This is uh, 1971, and and, and, and so this is like so now I know what now I know what the proper format is. Uh, and, and and back in those days to write in screenplay format you know boy on a typewriter yes so it, it's not even you know good you know gil gil and i you know the first scripts we ever wrote together were on style sheets you remember style sheets uh yeah no they they actually they actually just came out and i actually they had just come out and i bought them they had they had copies built in 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, you know, they yeah, had they yeah. had like the yellow and blue, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. not carbon paper. They had, you know, I actually bought those. They were expensive too. Those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the whiteout didn't work on those either. No, <laughs> no, had to like no, man. All right. Uh, so uh, on, anyway, I, I so I basically spent two months. I wrote each script like in a month, hmm. and I said, okay, uh, 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 I'm going out to uh, California. Now, I had uh, family out here. My uh, dad's older brother lived out here, and I visited them in high school, and I knew I could crash on their sofa. So I said to my listen, I'm going to give myself three months. That seems a reasonable amount of time to uh, to to make it in Hollywood or not. Uh, <laughs> three bye, honey. So um, I come out. And, it it and, never rains in, in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. So I arrive on a Saturday, and uh, Sunday, I look in the newspaper. I, I call up one person I know on Saturday who was a producer I met at the film festival, took a liking to me uh, and said, if you're ever in California, you know, I produce Charlie's Angels. I'm sure I can find something for you. Very talented. Um, so I call him up. He said, sure, come out and see me. But he had just gotten divorced and the show was canceled and he was living in a motel because he hadn't found a place to live yet. Uh, he says, listen, uh, I can't hire you right now, but let me recommend you to my agent. He calls him right in front of me. Yes, he's a very talented young man. Um, uh, he's made films. He's been published. New York Times. Fine. He, you can drop your scripts off Monday morning. He's exp- this is great, a great start. Who, so who, now, son, who is this angel? Uh, this guy Barney Rosen, so I a very well-known producer. Oh, I think sure, sure, sure. Now, yeah, yeah. Oh, Daniel wow. Boone okay. and Charlie Sanders, yeah. like, real, real, real guy. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, 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 sure. So oh. Sunday, I look in the new, a newspaper. So you know what? Maybe I won't be able to find a job at the studios right away. Maybe I should look for a real job. So I look in the Sunday paper, and uh, I see an ad for. Um, telemarketers well i can do that i've got my i was on the the, the student the, the the fm radio at college i can drop into my radio voice anytime you know and the other ad was proofreaders wanted for peterson publishing i think which they do the uh they do the the how to fix your car books you know it's yeah, like yeah, a te- yeah. the technical publisher mm-hmm. uh, and i said oh i know all the proofreading symbols i was in the high school newspaper college newspaper college humor magazine uh, so i ma- so i make those appointments so i got monday sorted now wait a minute one more ad. Contestants wanted for a game show. Are you good at crossword puzzles? Well, I'll check that one too. So Monday is now sorted. So Monday, first thing I do, I drive to the agency's office and I drop off my two scripts. Uh, these are for, you know, uh, for uh, um, Robbie Wald was the name of the uh, oh, sure. uh, the agent. And he's the son of a, of a producer, Jeff Wald, I think. Or maybe I've got it back. Maybe Jeff Wald was the father. Anyway, the real guy in the agency. Uh, then I go to the um, telemarketing interview. And the telemarketing guy says, you saw our ad. He says, you know, you sound like you're from the East Coast. What brings you to Los Angeles? Oh, daddy, daddy, yeah, Hollywood. He said, oh, okay. Well, anyway, here, uh, read the script. Um, so uh, it goes, you know, uh, your home is the most valuable asset you have. It's the future for your family. An aluminum siding protects your home against all conditions. Now that's when he says, oh, very good. You're great. Uh, you sound like you're from the East Coast. Yeah. Why are you at Hollywood? All right. Okay. Well, if you're not working at Warner Brothers, you can start here next Monday. Ha, ha, ha. Now I go to the proofreading interview. The guy says, I'm here for the proofreading interview. He says, all right, fine. Here's some galleys. Proofread these. And I'll come back and check on you. He gives me the proof, the, the, the thing to proofread. So I mark it up with all the little squiggles, you know, transpose, new paragraphs. Yep, yep, yep. Right. So I finish and I look, where is this guy? So finally, I find him in the break room flirting with a couple of uh, uh, secretaries. And I say, yeah, I'm done. He says, no, you can't be done. I said, I'm done. He says, look, uh, Maybe you want to go back and look at it again. I said, no, no, I, I, you know, I know this. He reads, he goes, 
son of a bitch, I've been here 10 years. Nobody ever got a perfect score. Hey, you sound like you're from the East Coast. What brings you to Los Angeles? <laughs> I say, well, yeah, yeah, I want to be sure. All right. Okay. Well, if you're not working at Paramount Pictures, you can start here next Monday. Ah. Now I go to the audition for the Crossword Puzzle Show, which is now the Scientology Studio. They bought it since oh, then. Oh, God. This is before sure, it was Scientology. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh... So there's like 150 people there. So the first <laughs> thing they do is they give everybody a crossword puzzle to do, which is kind of a middle school crossword puzzle. You know, it's really, you know, this is not the New York Times. This is not even the New York Times mini crossword. It's like really simplistic. Uh, but nonetheless, they lose about half the crowd. So now the 75 people that are left. They what say kind of they, puzzles were those people doing? I don't know. Uh, I thought I, I can come here and do this. So uh, they say, get up in front of the room and say a few words about yourself. So after the second or third young woman says, sure. well, I won a beauty contest in Omaha and I was Miss uh, Grain. And so if I go after three or four of these to go, uh, how many people here are here in Los Angeles to like be actors, actresses, singers, and like a huge chunk of the room raises their hands. So the guy, the producer running this is okay. This show is viewed all over America. It's kind of annoying if everybody's in show business. So if you get on the show, just describe your last real job. So actually when I was, uh, my last real job had been doing, I was on call as a substitute teacher uh, you know, when I, when I, right after I was laid off and I had worked, I don't know, maybe 10 days, but that was a real job, yeah. you know? Uh, so I said my last job, I was a, you know, English teacher at uh, John F. Kennedy uh, uh, junior high school, uh, go Falcons. Um, so, um, all right. So fine. All right. Okay. Now the people that were presentable, this is because they tape these game shows in front of a live audience, you know? So that's why they wanted you to like get up in front of the room to eliminate somebody who would freeze on the day. That's why they had us get up and address the whole room. So now the group that started out over 100 people were down to about uh, 30. And they, okay, what we're going to do now, this is Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, we are gonna do, we're going to drill you. You'll play against each other and we will pick 10 people that will tape uh, on Thursday, tape the show. It'll be a week's worth of shows. So I'm quickly like, you know, acing this all. There's another young woman and I, and we are killing everybody in the dry runs. Her mm -hmm. name was Victoria Stevens. And we're like shamelessly like talking behind the hand. I leave this moron and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, we know we're good to go. I get back to my aunt's house on Wednesday. Uh, and she says, a package came for you. And I look it up and it's from the agency. And I open it up and my scripts have been gone for 48 hours, right? The messenger has returned them to me. They look like they've been gone for months. The back page is missing from one of them. You know, it always tears off the brads. <laughs> the name of the script has been written on the side as if it was on a shelf for 10 seconds. There's a <laughs> coffee ring on one of them. And there's a buff slip that says, sorry, too busy to read these now. Dictated, but not read from the desk of Robbie Wall. So I call up my producer friend. He says, I can't believe, I can't believe that's such a law. I'm going to tear him a new essay. It's okay. It's okay. So my aunt sees my disappointment. And she says, you know, um, one of my best friends is um, Merv Griffin's secretary. Merv Griffin, for your younger uh, listeners, had a, was a producer, a songwriter, an entertainer, and he had a talk show. And he, he also created Jeopardy. Yes, Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. He says, maybe they're hiring there. Uh, why don't you, you know, I can call her right now. You can go over there and see her right now. Great. 
So it's a CBS, you know, studio in Hollywood. My aunt lives uh, in Hollywood in, uh, I guess, Mount uh, Olympus, if you know where that is out here. Yep. So it's like a five minute drive. Um, and uh, I go in there and I'm very excited as I'm going in to see her at her office. Uh, at Merv Griffin's office, I walk past the Hollywood Squares and I see them all of the Hollywood Squares. They're, they're there, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, celebrity sighting. So I go to see her. She says, you know, um, you know, I spoke too soon when I spoke to your aunt. Uh, I, I, I asked, I figured there was there had to be something, but it turns out they, you know, they just hired all the writers for the game shows and um, there's no no openings on the talk show. So I'm sorry you came over here for nothing. And I go, well, that's all right. I saw like uh, 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 Cliff Arquette, you know, uh, you know, out there in, in the As square. Charlie Weaver. Yeah, Charlie. Uh, so it, it just, no, wait a second. You know, there was a young lawyer who worked for Merv and he became an agent. I think he just left the law firm because we got a letter. He, he handled the day-to-day stuff for, for Merv. I have it here somewhere. Yeah, he's at this agency. Um, let me give him a call. So she calls him right there. And says yes, he's uh he's written for the New York Times. Uh, he's got several screenplay samples. He won uh, a he won uh, a prize at the Atlanta International Film Festival. He she says he says come right over. So I go right over because I brought like clean copies of the script, thinking I was going to give them to Vera. I go over there, and uh, this is Jim Burkus, who uh, later on was runs UTA now, but here he was sure, sure, sure. like, wow. and this is literally his first day on the job. Wow. He's got a carton of like scotch tape dispensers and he's actually loading stuff up in a desk in a cubicle he doesn't have an office yeah so uh he says oh we, he looks at the scripts he sees right away they're like the right length you know what i mean let's first you're like it's not 250 pages he says uh um uh have you uh i worked at a producer in local television i'm telling him, all right great he says will you do television like what do you mean he says well some people only do the theater only do no i'll take anything he says, all right, great. I'll, I'll read the stuff and get back to you. I said, all right, that's okay. That's fine. That's a good Wednesday. All right, Thursday, uh, um, we go in in the morning and they say, you made the cut. You are one of the 10 people we're going to record for the show here. And unfortunately, they put me opposite Victoria Stevens, you know, which was like, you know, it's was, it was like a gladiator movie when like Kirk Douglas has to go up against Woody Strode, but we were best friends, you know. Anyway. Only one I, of you walked away. Yeah. I annihilate, annihilate poor Victoria. Now I must take some credit because this is one of those shows we have celebrity co-hosts. Yeah. It was a panel of three. So my co-hosts were uh, Robert Q. Lewis. Oh, oh my God. team. Yeah, sure. Robert sure. Q. Lewis and Betty White. Oh, how could you lose? You couldn't I, lose. I, I, I have a recording of this, actually. Wow. I can give you a link to it. So, so, <laughs> so the other team, Victoria Stevens, was Leslie... Leslie Nielsen and Abby Lane. I remember this to this day. Now remember, they oh, told us like, having flashbacks. Flashbacks. They said, remember, don't talk about show business. Be like a real person, right? Yeah. So what you see on the show is, once I get the bit in my mouth and I'm starting to win, like I completely forget I'm supposed to act like a civilian. And so Robert Q. Lewis is saying, Robert Q. Lewis is saying, you know, I think Robert, please. Betty and I have this. Like I, I take, I, 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 I take over the panel. I win a car, a color television, and a stereo. Remember, I came on Saturday, so it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I've been in town five days. Now I have a car. Okay. So uh, 
after how, you, now how long does it take from okay you win the car but do they, do they actually give you the car right then no, the there? car the, it, it took a week for me to get the car huh, okay okay uh, so no, you ain't I, driving I, that car off the set into your no driver. no it doesn't work like that it was uh, a yeah, chevrolet yeah, yeah. chevette not my, it, it was it was not much of a car it was like right behind I, the ford i had a chevette okay it was a car but it was a car it was a car all right so um anyway uh after the the, the uh the taping of the shows um all the 10 people who had been on the show, we all go out to celebrate because, you know, everybody got, you know, everybody won something, consolation prize, something. Yeah. So we went out to like a restaurant and we're drinking and we're, and we're, it's like around one o'clock, one, one thirty in the morning when I roll back to my aunt and uncle's house and my aunt is up in a bathroom waiting up for me. Like I'm in high school and I go, what's up? He says, this guy called and said, you should call him back no matter what time, no matter how late. So I call him up. And it's Jim Burkus. And he says, listen, I read your stuff. I absolutely think uh, you can do this. I have another client who wants to meet you. And I go, uh, and he'll meet you tomorrow. And I say, that's great. I would love to get advice on screenwriting from a professional screenwriter. And he says, no, no, no. This is not about mentoring. This agency represents writers, directors, producers, actors. He is a producer of the $6 million man show. And they are having a very hard time finding people who can write that show because it's a strange combination of a science fiction show and a police procedural. And they find when writers come in who are, I'm going to name some things that your audience, younger audience won't know. When they come from a crime show, like who knows if your audience has ever heard of this, like Hawaii Five-0. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. It, it rebooted on, on, on CBS. So, yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, anyway, the original, so, the original Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. The original. Um, and they come Jack in. Lord. They say, okay, the bad guys are escaping in a helicopter, and the $6 million man flies up and get his. He can't fly. What do you mean he can't fly? He can't fly. This cockamamie show. Why can't he fly? They don't understand there's like a fence around the skills. Yes. Whereas the people who come from another show of the era that probably unknown to your younger viewers, Star Trek. The Star Trek writers come in and they Probably don't know. Yeah, they don't understand the police procedural thing. So they'll say, okay, he uses bionic eye to look through the window of the nightclub owner and he sees and he sees him paying off the district attorney. And he then he and then he crashes. I know we can't fly. He crashes through the window. No, no, no. It's a secret that he has bionic powers. He can't say I use my bionic eye. He has to work undercover as a bodyguard for the gangster and you know fall in love with his daughter whatever and then get the goods but you with your science fiction script and your crime script show you know both heads of the equation hmm. so tomorrow morning uh you you should have at your you should have already at your house uh, uh, an envelope that was sent over of a new show they're doing it's the pilot script which is called the gemini man which is like the invisible man and you have a meeting tomorrow at Universal Studios with Alan Balter, my client, and Harv Bennett, the executive producer of the shows, and uh, Leslie Stevens. Now, Leslie Stevens had done the done uh, Outer Limits. Yeah, uh, yeah, Alan yeah, Balter had come off of one of the police, yeah. police shows, and Harv Bennett is now well known from the lot from the feature films start the uh, Star Trek feature. Star films. Trek. Yeah. Uh, so I go to the meeting. It's almost like America. It's almost like America's Got Talent. They're like at a long table. And uh, I, I had read the script of the uh, the Gemini Man, it, I, and I, it seemed very familiar because what had happened: the same people had done 
for a different network, The Invisible Man, the previous season with um, David McCallum as The Invisible Man, and they were making him a spy, but they kept the original gimmick that he had turned invisible and it had gone wrong. So the show got canceled after about seven episodes on that network because every time he had a mask like Mission Impossible to look human, and then when he would turn invisible, he would discard the mask and his clothes, and then he would have to steal clothes from a washing line and then, and then maybe a, a, balacla- a, a, a balaclava, like, you know, like a yeah. ski mask, you know, to like go. And, and so they, you know, they wrote themselves in the corner with the invisible and the clothes and the naked. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. This new version where they end up using some of the same scripts when we got on the air. Um, it's, it, the, the, the new version was um, he was exposed to radiation. He was a deep sea diver and he was a rebel because he wore jeans. And he rode a motorcycle. He was a deep sea diver and. He stopped the nuclear submarine from exploding, but the radiation turned him invisible. But somehow it was was dis- the radiation was destroying his cells. And he first he turned invisible and then his cells would disintegrate. But they managed to save his life. They had some kind of watch with like some kind of radioactive, anti-radioactive, what's it, hand-wavium, uh, unobtainium, you know. Boy. And, Boy. And, and this watch kept him visible. And he could turn the watch off for 10 minutes a day. And be invisible for 10 minutes a day. But if he was ever invisible for more than 10 minutes a day, he would die. So that was this new co- co- convoluted way. So they say, tell us some of your ideas. So uh, I say, well, you know, they always say steal from the best. Alfred Hitchcock. No, I did I did the other way around. I said, okay, uh, all right. This time, all, I watch the shows. They're always commies. The bad, the bad guys are always communists. So I say, uh, okay, always steal from the best. Um, we all know Hitchcock. Let's do Lady on a Train. Only the Lady on a Train should be a hot young girl, and it's the Olympic swim team. And for some reason, the train with the Olympic swim team is the one they're transporting a nuclear weapon on. I forget how. Or maybe, I forget, maybe the one of the girls on the swim team is the daughter of the nuclear scientist they want to blackmail. I forget what whatever it was. I ended up writing the script. Whatever the you know, MacGuffin was. Yeah, but I forget what it was. I actually wrote the script for them, but at this time, it was, wasn't you see, but all I knew was like, Invisible Man, Girls locker room, it, it, you know, like it, you can't you can't miss with that, yeah, you know, yeah, with yeah. the audience for these shows. So the commies realize he's, you know, uh, he, they're on to him. He's fighting them. He's, this is when he's visible. Somebody sneaks up behind him, hits him with a wrench. He falls down on the railroad tracks, and his wrist hits the track. The button clicks. He turns invisible, and then the conductor says, "All aboard!" And the train starts moving. Go to commercial. So now they all like. So let's just like like America's Got Talent. They all start mumbling to each other. You know. So I said, good or bad. All right, what else you got? Uh, okay, continuing steal from the best. Alfred Hitchcock, um, notorious, right? There's you know, there's, a, there's a den of of, of Nazi spies. Uh, it's it, it, Claude Rains is really kind of a mama's boy. Uh, his mother's really the ringleader. We do the same thing, only it's commies, of course. And our guy turns invisible. He slips into the meeting of the commies. They're doing their plan of evil communist stuff. And all of a sudden, the mother turns to him and says, can I get you a beverage? Because she's blind, and she thinks he's one of the other commies in the room. Hmm. At this point, Harv Bennett jumps up, comes around the table, grabs me, and kisses me on the cheek, and says, finally, somebody who gets it. It's about getting these guys into a pickle. It's not about the superpowers. It's about the problem. Of the yes, superpower. that the superpower can solve, and and, and, and you got to reverse engineers. And this kid, I don't know how he knows it. This is great, great. Okay, Steve. Now, 
Uh, this is great. Uh, it's already late. Uh, ju just see Agnes about parking. And I say, just see Agnes about so, so, parking. So I, so I say, oh, oh, I, 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 I said, oh, I've got the ticket right here. Uh, but, but, you know, I don't even need to get validated because my cousin's going to pick me up when I call her. She lives and says, no, 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 not to be validated for parking for your assigned parking yeah, space. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're starting here Monday working <laughs> for Harv Bennett's bionic unit. And uh, you want you to hit the ground running. We How want many you to... days were you in town when this happened? I came on Saturday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. This is my sixth day here. And so I was basically at Universal for five years, wow. working my way up the food chain wow. from a story editor to like, to executive script consultant, to supervising producer, and finally to executive producer when I was a showrunner on Knight Rider. Right. And then you get to Knight Rider and, and the first season of Knight Rider, that's, yes. that's you. Yeah, yeah. You, you uh, are you are you are the man. You're, yeah, you're, I I also had made the deal. I said, I said, you know, I'm a director, you know, and so I made it. I was able to make a deal deal at that time. Uh, I want to direct a couple of episodes, but what invariably happened on all these shows as we got towards the end of the season, I just could not pull myself out for three weeks to direct the show. So I never like was able to take care of the opportunity to direct an episode until many years yeah. later on Tales, where we where where we where we all met. Right. Anyway, after after about five years, my contract was up, and during that little interregnum where we were renegotiating my contract, Paramount said, "Come over here. We will give you. We will meet or better anything Universal gives you, wow. and we will get you in the feature business at Paramount. There is no firewall between features and television like there is at Universal." Mm -hmm. So I went to Paramount, where I did two pilots for them under like the worst possible circumstances, everything going wrong writing in front of the camera, like Star going to the hospital, which powers of Matthew Star. We set our star on fire on the pilot. And then a show called The Renegades, which was uh, Patrick Swayze's, I think, first big role, which was like 21 Jump Street before 21 Jump Street. Right. And that was a crazy experience because, uh, you know, work you, you get a reputation working fast and under the gun. And so uh, this is where I met Larry Gordon and Joel Silver. Uh, they said, we want you to read the script. Uh, and write a scene with these characters that's the last scene of an episode that hasn't been shot yet. And I go, well, this is a strange assignment. Why? He says, Aaron Spelling is on fire. They'll shoot the phone book with him. And we sold this show. It's Aaron Spelling and Larry Gordon. We sold the show to ABC. They ordered it directly to series, right? And we have our first script in and we can't show it to them. It's a mess. And uh, it, it been what happened is Aaron had, had put... One of his writers working on one of his other shows to write this script like in 10 days and it didn't work out right. And one of the weirdest experiences I ever had, this is the same day, Aaron Spelling had him come into the office and apologize to everybody. It the was writer? A weird, you know, weird, real weird power thing. I really let you down. Oh my I'm really God. sorry. Was, oh my this, God, that's appalling. Yeah, it, it really strange the circumstance. So they were afraid to send the script to the network because they might blink. So they said, so they said, can you write a scene like this? These characters, they just finished the case. It's the last episode, freeze frame. Now, by this time, I've been working in television five, five, five years now. I knocked this thing out like, you know, in like 90 minutes. It's like four pages. Hmm. And they turn it, great. Okay, take this over to casting. They have actors there now. Right? This is how crazy this was. And then um, Roger Spottiswood, who, who was the director of this, um, He's going to film the, the scene I wrote the next day on the lot. So they went on the back lot. 
They found a place behind a soundstage. It looked like an alley where we could have like the, the gang comes together from all directions, like almost like a, a, a half-assed version of the opening of the of the remake of of uh, West Side Story, mm-hmm. where the where the gang comes in from different directions, you know. So one's mm-hmm. coming around the soundstage, one's coming out of a car, and then they meet uh, the the uh, their their um, their uh, contact, who I think was I can't think of the actor's name, but he was the bad guy in um, the bad guy in RoboCop, and he was on uh, he was the father on uh, the '70s show. Yeah, yeah, uh, Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Kurt, Kurt Smith. Kurtwood Smith is the. Uh, is the mm-hmm. superintendent doesn't really think we should using the young. Yeah, yep, so yep, they yep, shoot yep, that. Yep. So now he, network, and he did a crip too. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the network says, oh, this is great. We love the dailies. Where, where's the script? And so they made, Oh, you know what? Uh, they, they had a breakdown in the print shop. We're supposed, <laughs> supposed to get the script. Uh, we'll send it over tomorrow. So now yeah. I'm writing the movie. So now I go, what are do? He says, he says, you can write anything you want, but you have to keep a Chinatown connection. Why? because we have a Chinatown set on the lot we want to use. Uh, so just make some kind of Chinatown connection in your story. So now I'm writing this thing according to the shooting schedule, right? Sure. Completely out of order. Now, that was my one thing I've never had is writer's block, because when I get stuck, like, let's say I do not know how my boy and girl meet in my rom-com, not that I'm known for rom-coms, but hypothetically, but I could have their first date or their first argument you know, or a scene where they almost break up, even if I haven't figured out how they met, I can write out of order. I first realized this was unusual when uh, on the on the Bionic Woman, uh, I was I worked on all those shows, just me and on Bionic Woman, Gemini Man. The Bionic Woman, Lindsay Wagner was in an automobile accident, and we had to somehow do three episodes shooting around her, and then have her come back in and do her scene. So it was very crazy. So I had to do one of these things right away. So I send the pages in. And the guy calls, somebody calls me from the print, from the, uh, the print shop doesn't care, but I get a, a call from production. Listen, we just got these pages from the print shop. It says act two, where's act one. And I go, I haven't written it yet. And the guy says, Wait, says the guy says, well, we shoot these out of water. Who the fuck cares? You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, exactly right. So I'm writing this, this thing, the renegades pilot out of order. And the actors are coming up to me and saying, why am I angry at this person? And I go, um, you'll find out tomorrow. I mean, I actually haven't figured it out yet, you know. So anyway, the, the, the circumstances here with Roger Spottiswood as the director and Larry Gordon as the producer of a, of a crime script for a change, not like the super the, the uh, science fiction shows at Universal. I mean, Six Million Dollar Man, Night Rider, they're all science fiction-y. They were considered kid shows. Now this is more adult material, supposedly. Uh, the Renegades, it's like there's no talking cars. Um, so this is when uh, Larry gives me 48 hours. And that is part one of our interview with Steve D'Souza. Uh, in part two, I'm just, I'm, I'm even just thinking about the stories that, that Steve told and, and it's, it's yet to tell. It boggles my mind. In, in part two of the interview, uh, Steve will pick it up with 48 hours and uh, then he'll begin to talk about Die Hard. And the making of Die Hard, there are some amazing stories to come with that. Uh, some great Joel stories, of course. And then, of course, he'll talk about everything that came after. And it's when, when you look at Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, my God. Beverly Commando, Cop. Judge Dredd. Yeah. On yeah. And on. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wrote the, the Flintstones. He wrote Laura Croft. He wrote uh, Blast. Oh, I, the, the man has done so much. And again, he's he's an amazing storyteller. Join us for part two. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz. By Gil Adler. And by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster. And Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrible Crypt content. Thank you.